So Jay, this may be a controversial opinion, but I'm kind of glad Dark Beast survived the Age of Apocalypse. Actually, that makes sense to me, Miles. First of all, he's a terrific villain, and also, giving the already borderline supervillain-minded Hank McCoy a completely amoral doppelganger makes for some pretty interesting story hooks. Man, I'll bet. So, have the two of them interacted much? I remember their brief ill-fated team-up post-M Day. Oh, when Regular Beast went to Dark Beast for help rekindling the X-Gene and Dark Beast immediately kidnapped and experimented on a Guthrie? Honestly, I'm not sure what Regular Beast expected. Right? It's not like he hadn't dealt with Dark Beast before. I mean, Dark Beast literally bricked him into a corner of the Brand Corporation and then impersonated him for six months. Wait a second. Dark Beast and Regular Beast look completely different. How did Dark Beast pull off the switch? Miles, this is a Hank McCoy we're talking about. He just did some custom gene tweaking. Anyway, he'd had lots of time to prepare. He showed up in the 616 about 20 years before the Amcron crystal shattered. How'd he keep busy? Well, once Emma Frost restored his memory... Why would she do that? In her defense, she was pretty young, and it wasn't entirely deliberate. Anyway, Dark Beast pretty much laid low, did some science, engineered some Morlocks. Wait, Dark Beast did that? I thought the Morlocks were a sinister thing. He was using Sinister's science, or at least science stolen from the Sinister of Earth-295, which is why Sinister-616 ended up sending the Marauders to heal the Morlocks. So the beast with X-Factor was actually Dark Beast? No, no, this went down before all of that. Anyway, Dark Beast studied up on proper Hank, waited for his opening, pulled a cask of Amontillado, and promptly teamed up with Onslaught. Why would anyone team up with Onslaught? Unbridled villainy, I guess? Um, okay, but, but what happened to proper Hank? I assume he got out eventually, given that we've subsequently seen them in the same place. Sure. I mean, well, kind of. He had some help. Yeah, the X-Men are good like that. Oh, it wasn't from the X-Men. The ones who actually went back for Hank were Mystique. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. Not her usual thing, but she's had hero turns now and again. And Sabretooth. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 300 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. 300! Jay, this is episode 300! That's a lot. That is so many. I... I don't know if I ever thought we would get here, but nonetheless, I am impressed with us for making 300 episodes, plus some extras here and there, and our listeners for, like, actually still listening to us after six-ish years and 300-ish episodes. I'm just glad that I can accurately point out that this podcast lasted, or has so far lasted, in fact, considerably longer than the Confederate States of America. <laughs> Very good point. I'm not saying that, like, you should put statues of us up or anything like that. Just that if you really feel the need to have a sticker with an X on your car, there are better options. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, I guess you could put statues of us up. I feel like that money could probably go to something more useful. Yes. Unquestionably. Please don't put statues of us up. That's really unsettling. Well, anyway, here we are, 
at episode number 300, and we have hit a milestone not just numerically, but also for our coverage. Of course, we are going to be covering X-Men Omega today the last issue of the Age of Apocalypse before the world goes back to Earth-616 and we get to the mid-to-late portion of the 90s. But this is kind of a milestone for me as well, and one that I've been low-key excited about for a long time. After X-Men Omega, I stopped reading X-Men for years and years and years. In retrospect, I'm not entirely sure why. I guess the main universe just didn't feel interesting after Age of Apocalypse, and also I was like, you know, 13 years old and had other stuff on my mind. But Still, it's going to be like a lot of uncharted territory going forward from here, and I'm really excited about that. Our future is like an old map, except instead of here there be dragons, it says here there be onslaught. You know, I have read onslaught recently, and I think I might prefer the dragons, but we're not here to talk about onslaught or dragons today. We are here to talk about X-Men Omega, the culmination of maybe the biggest deal alternate universe that Marvel has ever had. Is that hyperbole? Is that accurate? It's been a really big event. I would say it's definitely the biggest X-Men event that's ever happened, or at least the most distinctive and recognizable. Um, it's also, I, th- I think, the event that's had the most explicit time on our podcast. While it is always Inferno... We have been covering the Age of Apocalypse for, I believe, I think this is the 14th episode, because we, we started with 287, right? Uh, that sounds about right, yeah. So this has been steadily for several months. In fact, it corresponded almost exactly to um, the the first peak of the COVID pandemic in, in the United States. I'd like to think that the end of the Age of Apocalypse would herald the end to that, but unfortunately what it actually does is, you know, lead into Onslaught and things like that, which I feel like is actually still a pretty good metaphor for relaxing social distancing before it's okay and then breaking everything again. Because, yeah, then you get a big dude in red armor who unleashes a bunch of sentinels around the Marvel Universe and then everyone fights them and nothing really happens aside from that for months. And he doesn't even wear a mask. Ugh, jerk. Anyway, before we get started, I see that we both have glasses full of amber-colored alcoholic boozage. So, Jay, 300 episodes. I'm really glad we got here. I'm really glad we got here together. Cheers. I mean, you know, sound effects are necessary when you're podcasting thousands of miles from each other, but the intent is real, gentle listeners. This is, this is the final episode of at least this round of Age of Apocalypse coverage. You want to go over where we're coming from? What's happened, you know, in the previous 13 or so? Oh, plus Legion Quest. It's been a lot. Oh boy. Okay, let's see how quickly we can summarize all of that. Well, in the main Marvel Universe reality of Earth-616, Professor Xavier's son Legion traveled back in time to kill Magneto before Magneto could become Xavier's supervillain nemesis. Unfortunately, Legion, that's David Haller if you're nasty, made the mistake of picking a time when Xavier and Magneto were A, still BFFs, and B, hanging out together. So Xavier dove in front of the killing blow intended for Magneto. I'll interject here to say, we should probably podcast with Whiskey more often. This is nice. And then tell you that, without Xavier's presence, the 20 years of history after his newly retconned death went very differently. Because without Xavier, the X-Men would never have found and protected the reality-defining Emkron crystal. And 
As a result, the reality we knew and loved was overwritten instead of just splitting off into a new timeline, as usually happens in the Marvel Universe, see for instance Days of Future Past. In this new reality of Earth-295, there were still X-Men, this time founded by Magneto in honor of his dead friend's dream of peaceful human and mutant coexistence. Unfortunately, Magneto delayed a little too long in founding the X-Men, and they weren't able to stop the likewise earlier-than-usual rise of the immortal apocalypse of Big Blue Batty, obsessed with a questionable version of the concept of survival of the fittest. Apocalypse took over much of the world and turned it into a dystopian mutant-dominated hellscape, an age of apocalypse, if you will. I will. One person did make it to the new reality from the old one, though. Lucas Bishop, mutant cop of the future, who had hitched a ride with Legion back to the past. After spending the 20 years following Xavier's death wandering around sad and minus his signature mullet, Bishop finally found Magneto and told the mutant leader what was going on, and the fact that their reality shouldn't have existed in the first place. Magneto agreed that the old reality sounded way less awful, and enacted a plan. Nightcrawler was sent to find Destiny, his mom's ex, in the Savage Land. Destiny would be able to confirm or deny Bishop's story using her ambiguous precognitive powers. Colossus and his team of young trainee X-Men, Generation Next, were sent to rescue his long-thought-dead little sister Ilyana from the slave pits of Seattle. Her latent time travel powers could maybe help fix history. Gambit and his band of thieves traveled into space to retrieve the Amcron Crystal itself, or at least a piece of it, so that reality could be repaired. Did we mention that Xavier's death meant that all realities became unstable, including the Age of Apocalypse, and were thus going to be erased too? Stupid Amcron Crystal. Gambit did manage to retrieve a shard of the crystal, but promptly lost it and Magneto's son Charles to one of Apocalypse's spies. Because, you know, Gambit. Meanwhile, there was plenty of non-reality rewriting heroing for the rest of the X-Men to take care of, which is why Magneto was alone when Apocalypse came calling to capture him. Logan and Jean Grey, for their parts, had quit the X-Men a while back, and they helped the Human High Council in human-controlled Europe clear a path and launch their nuclear bombing run on apocalypse-controlled North America. Or at least Logan did, because Jean didn't like the genocide portion of the plan, and headed halfway through that series to North America to warn the would-be nuke-ease. There she met up with Cyclops, in this universe one of the lieutenants of Mr. Sinister, himself one of Apocalypse's horsemen. Cyclops had secretly been freeing prisoners for a while, and Jean convinced him to go full hero and lead a prisoner rebellion. Little did they know that during a previous encounter, Mr. Sinister had joined DNA samples from both Jean Grey and Cyclops and created a test to baby named Nate using super science to age him to angsty teenagerhood. Nate escaped, and after spending a while with a group of revolutionaries who disguised themselves as Shakespearean performers, headed to New York to go after Apocalypse himself and to get revenge for the death of his adoptive dad, Forge. Now everyone else is headed to New York, too, to take on Apocalypse and put an end to this reality, including a human airship fleet full of nuclear warheads. Okay, there we go. Uh, quite a few episodes summarized, so let's move directly to X-Men Omega endings. This is the second of the two issues that bookends the entire Age of Apocalypse. The first, of course, was X-Men Alpha, the first issue we covered in our AOA coverage. This story was created by Scott Lobdell, the dialogue was done by Mark Wade, pencils by Roger Cruz, inks by Bud LaRosa, Tim Townsend, Carl Kessel, Harry Candelario, Scott Hanna, and Al Milgram, 
colors by Steve Bucolato and Electric Crayon, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And of course, this being an even vaguely special issue anywhere in the vicinity of the 90s, it has a cardstock wraparound chromium cover, in this case by John Romita Jr. I hate to start this on a low note, but I gotta say, man, I didn't notice as much with the physical comic because it's it's all shiny, but lord, this cover does not hold up well in digital format. Yeah, yeah, I want to say, was it Joe Matarera or just Roger Cruz aping Joe Matarera with X-Men Alpha? Because that one totally worked. That one is great. This one just looks really sloppy. Again, the finish on the print edition obscures that a little bit. It looks cool. It's very shiny. But in digital, it's, oh, it, 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 it is not a good format for it. Well, what it is good as is an ending to this event. It's... Uh... There are problems here and there, maybe quite a few problems, but God, God, it is satisfying. It's absolutely the Gershadamarung of Age of Apocalypse. It's the final act of an epic, and every scene feels like it. And like any good epic, it starts in a pile of smoldering skeletons. Because as we know, Apocalypse likes nothing more than the smell of burning skeletons, and that's why his throne hovers over them. So would that be like Bone Paris, or would it be Bone Sense? How would that work? Bone Sense. If it were Bone Paris, they wouldn't be smoldering. Oh, okay. So maybe uh, once the the smoldering dies down, then it's just Bone Paris, so it's like two states of matter for skeletons under Apocalypse? No, that would be if you, like, crunched up the cremains and mixed them with cedar chips and some other stuff. Okay, well, maybe Apocalypse is planning to do that later. Uh, we don't know. The world ends. So, Holocaust, Magneto's shitty son, is currently in the pile of bone sense, torturing Magneto, who's in this weird, like, black prisoner zentai suit? I'm not sure why you would put a prisoner in that unless you really, really wanted to show off their 90s musculature. The word you're looking for is unitard. Zentai suit would involve head covering as well. Okay, well, you can't do that because Magneto has such long hair. In this issue, I mean, his hair was already long in the Age of Apocalypse, but in this issue, it's like down to his calves. It's amazing. Well, it's it's proportional to his awesomeness. Oh, okay, gotcha. So uh, it's kind of like in Journey, that amazing old indie game, how your scarf would get longer and longer as you became more powerful and shrink as you got injured. Right, but it is actually kind of visual semiotics in comics that, that your hair gets longer and cooler and more dramatic for dramatic moments. That, you know, the physical reality of, of those details is secondary to their potential dramatic impact or use to, to emphasize that. I feel great about the fact that I haven't been able to get a haircut in ages then. Okay. Well, anyway... Magneto may be bloody, but he's not too worried, because his X-Men know better than to screw up the plan just for him, as we specifically saw in the Amazing X-Men miniseries. Apocalypse isn't concerned either, because Magneto, as it turns out, is not his primary bait. That would be the shard of the Emicron crystal that he picked up from... Guido, the traitor in Gambit and the Externals. Apocalypse knows about the whole reality switcheroo thing that Magneto is planning. He had his Madri use their weird religious telepathy stuff on Bishop to figure that out. So he figures this way, he's got the key to the lock that is fixing reality. I feel like this is a good time to point out what we maybe should have beforehand. We are looking at, again, the last issue of a fairly plot-intensive series. If you are confused by what we're saying, Go back to episode 287 and listen from there. That's a pretty good jumping on point. We made a point of introducing everything. Then come back to this one and you'll have a fair idea of what's happening. 
Although Apocalypse has a pretty good summary of what he thinks is going to happen. They will die. I will win. Congratulate me, Manus. I mean, he's probably not going to mean it if you have to force it. And that's true. That's true. Well, let's head heavenward. Or not heavenward, because heaven, Angel's Casablanca-esque bar, has pretty much been shut down. Instead, Angel, a neutral party, the Lando Calrissian of the Age of Apocalypse, has been swooping around the burning rubble of Manhattan trying to find Karma, one of his employees and friends who was captured by Apocalypse's forces. He finally decides that he's done with being neutral. He stomps and shoots his way through a handful of guards and infinites to find the captured Karma. This part's kind of confusing because... The way the speech bubble is laid out makes it look like Karma is actually in infinite armor, and Angel just shot that person in the armor thinking she was an infinite, and now she's dying because of it. But then in the next panel, she's not anywhere near the armor, so I don't know. Anyway, she dies after apologizing for giving up all of Angel's info to Apocalypse, and Angel decides to respond to this, and all of his guilt for staying neutral when it's pretty clear now that one side was way worse than the other— by strapping bombs to himself and swooping straight into the force field generator for Apocalypse's stronghold. Well, I think it's important that he doesn't swoop straight in. Specifically, he uses the one skill we've seen him honing since the Silver Age, which is dodging lasers. Oh, that's true, there are so many lasers and he dodges them so well. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, I take back at least three or four of the bad things I've said about you. The comic doesn't, because there's a really, really mean caption afterwards about how no one's gonna mourn him. Well, as is traditional for everything comes together at the end issues in comics, Angel's act has unintended consequences. Specifically, Nate Gray, who has been climbing up Apocalypse's obscene monument, the central tower in Apocalypseville, now he can get in, because, hey, no more force field. And he does that in time to rescue Magneto before he can be killed, and for the two of them to team up against Apocalypse. Now, Nate's been seeing Magneto on and off in visions, but he's never met him in person yet, and Magneto recognizes him instantly as the kid who Forge said, you know, would show up someday to save everyone. But man, the backdrop of all this... Just as all this is happening, one of Apocalypse's grunts, who's misidentified as the Shadow King, that's a little weird, the Shadow King's definitely dead at this point, or at least partially dead... Yeah, this is some dude with two heads. Well, anyway, dude with two heads says, presumably in two voices, that um the whole Midwest just blew up because the Human High Council's airship fleet just freaking teleported in and started bombing all of North America. It seems kind of weird that they started blowing things up in the Midwest when Apocalypse's stronghold is in the Northeast, but to be fair, Gateway using his whirly gig to teleport the entire fleet across the globe wasn't exactly plan A, so, you know, maybe he wasn't able to pinpoint things too well. Well, also, the last thing that all of the European humans have, have dealt with involved Mikhail Rasputin, the horseman of the Midwest, so maybe they were just holding a real specific grudge. Could be, but... Yeah, I mean, think about this. This is why Jean Grey wasn't willing to go with Logan and the Human High Council to do this, because seriously, millions of humans and mutants, most of whom were innocent, and presumably all of the humans were innocent, or except the shitty Reavers and stuff, they just died just to damage Apocalypse's empire. Like, think about the impact of that. This issue is truly climactic in a number of ways, and body count is certainly one of them. 
Yeah, I mean, this is this issue is the end of a universe. It is. And, you know, because because that's happening, we just see characters dying, characters dying, characters die, and Apocalypse almost casually, as an afterthought, sends his seawall technology to just eradicate the human high council, which it does. But, yeah, like you were saying, Jay, as all this is going on, Magneto and Nate Gray are teaming up with the powers of psychic yellow energy stuff and the miracle of magnetism against the big bad, against Apocalypse. I love this because Nate wants to step in and be the savior. He wants to be, you know, the new generation. But this is a fight neither of them can win on their own. That We've seen clearly that neither of them can win on their own. And it's so satisfying seeing the two of them finally come together to actually take on Apocalypse. Oh man, it's the, it's like that scene in so many Japanese RPGs where all of the allies you've made over the course of the game just all come together in all of their airships or tanks or whatever to help you against the big bad at the exact moment of greatest gravity. I realize that it's a common trope, but I think of it as the Skies of Arcadia thing because I'm not sure anyone's ever actually done it better. I love that game so much. More people should play it. So as all this is going on, well, this is a book with X-Men in the title, so what are the X-Men up to? They teleport in through the pens to finish this fight, take on Apocalypse, save Magneto, and erase reality. Or rather, most of them do. There are a few missing. Yeah, it's weird. We see from the Astonishing team, Sunfire's missing, which, okay, I mean, you know, we see he quits the team a lot in the 616, so maybe he did here. Sabretooth and Wildchild aren't here, but they show up randomly later. From the Amazing team, Storm, Exodus, and Dazzler are just not here for some reason. I'll buy Exodus and Dazzler missing, but Storm? Seriously? I know, right? From Gambit and the Externals, there's no Lila Cheney, but to be fair, if I were Lila, I would be getting the hell out of there after everything that went down in that miniseries. Right, and she's not primarily a fighter, so that makes sense. The Bedlam brothers from Factor X are nowhere to be seen, Sauron and Sonique from X-Man aren't there, although they never really intended to be, and from Excalibur, Damask and Mystique haven't showed up either. We just see Nightcrawler and Destiny from that book. That said, I, I'm willing to forgive that because there are a lot of characters on the page in this. There's a lot going on. Yeah, speaking of Japanese RPGs, there's a reason you could usually only have three or four members of your giant party in battle at once. Or at least that you had to clip between them. So, the pens were deserted, were entirely freed at the end of Factor X. There's only one man left in them, and that is the severely eaten and nearly devoured Dark Beast, Hank McCoy, whose territory they were and who used to spend his blithe days experimenting cheerfully on the folks entrapped there. You said severely eaten, but honestly, that's pretty appropriate too. He had a bunch of animal mutants uh, gnawing on him for a while, so I feel fine about that. On one hand, I really do feel like they deserve to have just eaten him. On the other hand, as we mentioned in the cold open, he is a really cool villain and I'm kind of glad he survives this. Well, part of surviving is knowing when to fold him, so he does indeed tell his captors where to go. He tells them how to teleport into the crystal chamber where the Emkron crystal is being stored. And when they get there, Destiny sees tons of images from Earth-616 in the different facets of the crystal. The images are mostly related to Xavier's death, or Magneto's a villain, to Yana's death. 
what this all shows her, though, is that, yeah, Bishop was right. There is another world where things were way different and where Apocalypse didn't run everything. Although based on these visions, things still involved a lot of superhero fights, apparently. I'd suggest making Bishop was right t-shirts, but I feel like given recentish continuity, you'd then have to reckon with the fact that he spent decades chasing a baby through history trying to murder it. Not Bishop's finest, uh, well, decades, it's true. There was definitely a lot of, like, repeated genocide. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of that part. Quicksilver wants to form an escort team of X-Men to see Destiny, Ilyana, and Bishop into the crystal, but Destiny won't have any of it. No, only we three can go, for only we three no longer have counterparts in the other reality. Okay, wait a minute. Now, I'll grant that Destiny is dead in 616, and Ilyana is close enough to dead in 616, but Bishop? 616 Bishop was a really big deal in Legion Quest. He's right there. No, this is 616 Bishop who's going back through. There's one Bishop who jumped realities. This is not the Bishop of Earth 295. This is the Bishop who was on Earth 616 and has spent the last 20 years on Earth 295. Okay, that is a very good point. Like, he does overlap with the 616 self at one point, but they are the same person. Okay. But I'm just saying, Morph and Blink, they definitely died in 616, so at the very least, they should be able to go as an escort to the Emkron Crystal to help everybody out. Look, man, the Emkron Crystal, as we have established firmly, is clearly and inescapably governed by rules of plot necessity. Yeah, well, fair enough. One person who's not happy about this plan, though, is Colossus. He just sacrificed his entire team of Generation Next to save his sister Ilyana, and now if this succeeds, the world isn't going to have an Ilyana. She'll be gone. Yeah, and he doesn't know, given the history, whether she's died or it just means that she was never born in that timeline, but... Yeah, and, and we've seen him becoming more and more and more unhinged as his own series progressed. He is a version of Colossus who has an entirely given up hope, and who has also entirely given up caring about collateral damage. The only thing he is concerned with is saving the one surviving member of his family. Well, we'll tragically get to that shortly, but in the meantime, Nate and Holocaust crash through a nearby conveniently placed stained glass window of the crystal chamber. I'm pretty sure Apocalypse just put that stained glass ceiling in because he knew that at some point someone would probably dramatically crash through it and that appealed to his sense of drama. Well, we just walk back and forth uh, across the street carrying the sheet glass window and he makes sure there's always enough watermelons. Wayne's World 2, an underrated sequel. Rogue sees Magneto dramatically hovering in, his hair somehow even longer than last time we saw him. She's overjoyed, of course, because she thought he was dead, but we should just do this dialogue. I love all of this dialogue. Jay, you want to be Rogue? Not really, no. I, I feel like that accent belongs firmly to you. Okay, well, you're Magneto, and I'll be Rogue. Eric, you're alive! That means we're gonna be okay. Tell us what to do, quickly! No. No more orders. Our actions are no longer mine to choose. Reality crumbles. We have but one chance to salvage one world not our own. A world that should have been. And he turns to Ilyana. And that chance, little one, lies solely with you. I cannot command you to help us, child. I can only tell you that I... That we 
cannot create this better place without you. This world, sir, is it a place where there's no sugar man? A place where little girls like me won't have to be afraid? And Magneto believes so, but that's not enough. Ilyano wants him to promise, and it's Bishop finally who breaks in with the best answer that someone can give. Here's what I can promise. I can promise that in this other world, there's hope. Hope that by working hard enough, reaching far enough, others like us can someday rid that world of the fear and prejudice and hatred that claimed this one. This, I swear to you. Later on, I'm gonna find a few, I'm gonna spend a few decades trying to kill hope, but, yeah. Then I'd rather have hope than nothing at all. Bishop's main point here is that the 616 is salvageable. He's not trying to spin it into a utopia, but he feels pretty strongly that the Age of Apocalypse is basically doomed, and he's not entirely wrong. Apparently this was a load-bearing set of dialogue because the stronghold is collapsing. And I'm not sure if it's collapsing because of all the damage that Nate Gray and Holocaust did, or if the force field generator exploding is causing it, but regardless, everyone's got to get the hell out of here. But Miles, Miles, it's a big, dramatic, climactic conclusion to an event. Do you know what that means it's time for? What? X-Men 137 references. Oh, it totally is! Let's cut away to that end to Scott and Jean, because again, you can only get so far into the drama- dramatic conclusion of an event without without at least briefly alluding to the end of the Dark Phoenix saga. So Scott and Jean are leading the folks they've liberated from the pens across the bridge into New Jersey, and we get not only a visual, but a, a narrative callback to, again, X-Men 137 and that climactic fight on the moon. He is Scott Summers. She is Jean Grey, and they have a long way to go. Oh man, you gotta be careful when you reference something like the Dark Phoenix Saga, but this earns it. This is, I feel, an appropriately climactic moment, and I gotta say, I've mentioned this before, this is one of those things where I can see the clockwork. I know exactly what they're doing, I know why they're doing it, and it still works on me every time. I completely agree. I completely agree. Jean suddenly feels millions of deaths from the Midwest bombing. It just hits her all at once. And she knows that they're next, that the fleet is coming for New York, where they are, that this entire place is going to be wiped off the map. And here, the narration starts counting down, and it's going to do so for the rest of the issue. Yeah, the countdown, in fact, specifically marks how long this issue and this world have left. Jean creates this gigantic telekinetic shield in the sky to protect them, which, that's a reach even for Jean. And she's concentrating so hard that she doesn't notice, number one, Logan parachuting down to make his peace with Jean before the world effectively ends, and two, Havoc, who survived Factor X, and shows up to blast Jean in the back and kill her. You know, you mentioned it's a stretch for her powers, but I want to point out that she and Scott had just met up with Nate Gray, and she had come out of that with her powers significantly elevated. Valid point, valid point, but yeah, it doesn't help her against Scott Summers' douchebag brother. I mean, in this universe, he's great in the 616. I mean, 
He's kind of douchey sometimes in the 616, but nothing on nearly this scale. Like, he's, he's, he's lovably flawed in 616. This one, the worst. Imagine that, big brother. The Summers actually had something in common after all. We both had an eye for traitorous redheads. Also true in the 616, where they manage not to murder each other. I'm just saying. And then Havoc zaps and kills Cyclops as well? Wait a minute, we know that they are immune to each other's powers. Okay, so we actually did some research about this, because we called shenanigans on this panel. Because again, shouldn't be possible. As it turns out, and the sound effects back this up, this panel was supposed to be redrawn. Havoc was supposed to pull out a gun and shoot Cyclops with it. The sound effects for the gun stayed, but so did the original art. So you see Havoc blasting his big circular plasma bolt at Scott with the word blam by one of his hands. Whoops. You know, it's a continuity mess, but I love the human element of that error. I love the little telltale things in comics when something's off in those small ways that kind of point back to it being this big thing that was assembled piecemeal and painstakingly by a huge number of people. Yeah, I completely agree. It makes it an artifact of our world as well as a telling of a story from another, and that's kind of rad. Yeah, that's something. So I, I have a fair amount of original comics art, and most of it is newer stuff, and some of it is, is, is you know, inks over digital pencils. But I have this one page of Baker Street on Sky Davis' page, and it is like a quarter of an inch thick in places from the paste up and the layers of white paint. The zip tone has has aged it, and, and some of the ink has aged at different rates, so they're different shades. And I love it so much because not only can you see the art, not only is it all there, but you can really see the construction of it. You can see that it's, you can see it, you know, as a physical artifact that was made, that has all of these steps and stages and components. Oh yeah, so cool. I, I was privileged enough to see a Bills and Cabbage original at one point and the texture, the layers of it all, God, it's breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, that's something that there are current artists who, who, Definitely, definitely do. I mean, the my my the the first person who pops into my mind is is Janet Lee, who, in addition to do, being a phenomenal artist, has done two books that were entirely decoupage on wood. Whoa. But yeah, oh yeah, no, both of the Dapper Men books are are literally decoupage on 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 sheets of wood. They're phenomenally cool. She brings pages to conventions, and you should look at them if there's ever another convention. Yeah, if fair enough. Oh, man. Oh, I love it. But what I don't love is all of this tragedy, as much as it does make for good storytelling. Logan shows up just in time to snick Havoc from behind, and Havoc's gone, but it's too late. There's only enough time left for Jean to say that Logan was always with her in her heart as she dies. And this narration, it's another one of those on-the-nose references that X-Universe did a whole bunch, but again, I'm not even mad. I just love it. Oh, this bugged me. It pulled me right out. But through his pain, Logan remembers a myth of old, of a beautiful bird that was so worshipped it would rise reborn from death's ashes. But though he desperately wants to believe otherwise, he knows that his beloved Jean 
is no phoenix. Okay, we learn from Jason Aaron's Thor run that far, 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 far in the future, Logan does bond with the Phoenix Force. So maybe across dimensions and time, he has enough of a connection with the Phoenix Force to make that reference to the Dark Phoenix Saga. Eh. Hey, let me have this one, man. Follow your heart, buddy. I will. Okay, so it is time for the big plan. Nate Gray and Holocaust are facing off, zapping each other in the sky as the heroes defend the Amcron Crystal from Apocalypse's vast, enormous armies. But in the Crystal Chamber, there's a lot less going on. There's just Destiny, Ilyana, and Bishop. Now, if there's anything we've learned from the Age of Apocalypse, it's that teleporters in particular can gain powers if they believe in themselves real hard. And so Destiny tells Ilyana to do just that, and... Sure enough, she opens a portal into the heart of the crystal, and Bishop goes straight in. Back through a rewind of the entire Age of Apocalypse, back to Israel 20 years ago, to the time and place where Legion accidentally killed Charles Xavier. He's not the only one who makes it into the crystal, though. Yeah, the Sugar Man from Generation Next takes this opportunity to jump out of his hiding place in Colossus's boot and into the crystal, thus causing the exact thing in the 616 that Ilyana was hoping wouldn't be the case, the Sugar Man being around. And Dark Beast runs away from the heroes for just long enough to use nearby technology to teleport into the crystal himself. Quicksilver tries to scramble the computers to screw up the teleportation, but it apparently totally works, because Beast will indeed end up in the 616, roughly at the same time that the Sugar Man did. What I assumed is that Quicksilver tried to scramble the computers, and that's why they ended up getting sucked back to the point that Bishop teleported to rather than to the equivalent of the present. Yeah, I'll take it. You get a no prize, Jay. Thank you. I will look forward to my empty envelope. Hooray! Colossus, though, is just freaking out more and more. His sister doesn't exist in this new world, and he needs to be with her here at the end, whether he can prevent this or not. Colossus, meanwhile, has decided that he is going to stop this from happening. The only thing that matters is saving his sister. If the other universe overwrites this one, she won't exist anymore, and so he charges straight toward the crystal. No! If I am to die this day, it will be at my sister's side! Ilyana, I'm coming! He charges straight through Iceman, shattering him, and then we get a bit of narration that, so, so I've talked about images that have really stuck with me since the first X-Men comics I've read, this is a bit of narration that has stuck in my head for, at this point, more than 20 years, just because it's so brutally, beautifully done. Like, fuck you, Mark Wade. Fuck you so much for this bit. Oh, man. Minus five. Seconds slip away, as do the ties that bind. As Shadowcat moves to block her husband, she trusts that their love will protect her. She trusts that he would never hurt her. She trusts him to stop. And that is why she doesn't face. And Colossus tramples her, and she's gone. She dies. She doesn't even get 
a death speech the way that Jean does. She's just gone the same way that every member of Generation Next was gone. Yeah, these are a series of unwilling sacrifices of people who believed in Colossus's humanity and whom he let fall in surface to what he considered, you know, the last bastion of that humanity. And I think, in a way, the way Colossus is in Earth-295 is one of the most vivid, painful condemnations of the Age of Apocalypse. It's a really cool alternate universe, and yeah, there's a lot of dystopia and death, but seeing so clearly and up close how the good man that Piotr Rasputin was got turned into this makes it so clear why the Age of Apocalypse cannot be allowed to continue. Well, and it's doubly brutal, too, because this is a kitty who we know is not a good person. She is cruel. She is extremely suspicious of everyone. She looks out for number one. And Colossus is the person she trusts. He is the one exception to that. And it's not enough. It's not enough. And that takes us to the past, where Bishop, who has gone into the Emkron Crystal, back in time, across dimensions, runs toward Legion, Xavier, and Magneto, and is briefly caught by his ponytailed, bearded self, who, as we established before, is actually the same person. And he just jams his memories of the Age of Apocalypse into Bishop 616 the Younger with a punch to the gut. I know that Bishop can reabsorb and rechannel energy, so I guess he can do so with memories. Whatever. The point being, after he does that, he dives at Legion and jams Legion's psychic dagger intended for Magneto that would have hit Xavier into himself. And through that connection, Legion sees the consequences of his actions. He sees what would have happened if he tried to kill Magneto, that his father would die, that reality would be broken, that the Emkron crystal would shatter across the multiverse. And he also is overloaded with the circuit that makes with his own psychic energy. This effectively kills Legion. And in the end, you know, he's remorseful, whether at his own actions or at what they've cost him, it's never sure. Bishop isn't going to let him off the hook. You had the potential to be the greatest of us all, David. Instead, twisted with hatred, you squandered your power. Your father would not be proud. And that's the end of Legion for one of the longer deaths in X-Comics. He is not going to show up back on the page for another 14 years until New Mutants Volume 3. Although Excalibur will fight the ghosts of Legion's alternate personalities before then, sort of, it's a thing. And it works. The four time-displaced X-Men who'd been sent back to the 70s are sucked back to the present. All of them, except for Bishop, without memories of exactly what happened. And weirdly, the Xavier, Magneto, and Gabrielle Haller of the 70s their memories fade away too. For them, this just never happened. And I'm really not clear why, although it does keep the timeline cleaner, at least. It's probably for the best, all things considered. Now, we saw back at the end of Legion Quest what the X-Men of Earth-616 do with only seconds left to live in their universe. Now we get the chance to see that on Earth-295. 
Magneto, facing off with Apocalypse, pulls up all of the scrap metal and machinery around, turns it red because he looks cooler that way, I guess, and forms this massive power armor, and he's about to kill Apocalypse when Guido comes up, holding baby Charles, who begs Magneto for help. That is dirty pool, sir. Thankfully, Rogue shows up, absorbs Guido's mass, so he's in agony, and then uses it to punch Guido into next week. So, that part's okay. And... Apocalypse, meanwhile, manages to escape at least temporarily with the original shard of the Emkron crystal. Fuck his reality, he's gonna use this to travel to the 616 and take it over. Or, you know, at least meet up with the other him and, and you know, do a few song and dance numbers. But Nate Gray grabs that crystal and stabs it into Holocaust, which weirdly teleports both Nate Gray and Holocaust into the present day of Earth-616, where the former will have a very long series and the latter will kill Rusty Collins for basically no reason. Oh, Rusty Collins. I'd kind of forgotten that guy. Yeah, so did everybody else. That's why Marvel killed him, I guess. Oh, no, you know what? I bet Holocaust killed him because he saw him, and he knew that Rusty's very occasionally used codename would cause trademark issues down the line when his father developed his CGI chat program. Oh yeah, the fire fist thing that Apocalypse uses as his visual video conferencing ringtone. That was probably mm -hmm. it. Clearly. And Magneto, in his power armor, literally rips Apocalypse in half. It actually kind of reminds me of this old Masters of the Universe toy called Blast Attack, who his power was that he would, like, explode, but when he did, that just meant he fell into two halves, and his head was on one half, and then you'd put him back together. It was an action figure that made no goddamn sense. I get the feeling, hearing about those action figures, that a lot of them were ones that were manufactured with problems, and then they kind of figured out how to market those as features. I think you're not wrong. Magneto for all of his victory, knows that he's running on borrowed time. The bombs are beginning to fall, and these are his last moments with Rogue and with their son Charles, and he takes a minute to eulogize yeah, the man whose death changed the course of his life, Charles Xavier. He preached a dream of harmony, and told me that any dream worth having was a dream worth fighting for. He taught me well, had I these long years to live over again, I might have made other choices. I might have done many things differently. But I would never have stopped fighting for the dream. That is your legacy, Charles Xavier. Now, as I hold my family to me before the end, I thank you for changing my life. And we hit zero, and the bombs fall. And that's the end. As everything fades to white. That's the end of the Age of Apocalypse. It's a story about sacrifice. It's a story about losing everything in service to the hope that maybe things could be better. It's a very 90s story. It's flawed in many ways. It doesn't always make sense. But I love it so much! X-Men Omega is, I think, one of the best 
landed endings that any major event has had. It's I, I compared it to Goethe Damerung before, and it's got the same feel. It is the close of an epic. It is all of the dominoes that have been lined up across four months falling in this inexorable, amazing pattern. And, you know, the Age of Apocalypse, this Age of Apocalypse, is in fact going to come back. It's going to turn out that this world continued on. And I like to pretend that that's a different Splinter universe because... I think it cheapens the quality of the ending that we've gotten here. I completely agree, yeah. I mean, I can be okay with Dark Phoenix not having really been Jean. I don't think that takes away from the Dark Phoenix saga. But so much of what the Age of Apocalypse is and means requires that level of absolute, total sacrifice. Well, it starts and ends with X-Men who know that they're fighting against impossible odds running on borrowed time. And that's so often what X-Men is about. It's often been said that the X-Men are at their best when their backs are up against a wall. And that's probably why life is just terrible for the X-Men, like, 80% of the time. But I think it's true. I think that's where the heroism of these characters really comes out, and it certainly does here. So, whether or not the Age of Apocalypse continues, a number of survivors are going to make it back to the 616 and set up camp there. Who migrates over? Well, as we mentioned, the Sugar Man will end up 20 years in the past. He'll end up in Genosha and help found it, which is weird. Similarly, Dark Beast will end up 20 years in the past to create the Morlocks. Nate Gray and Holocaust, through their magic stabby action, end up in the present day, and Nate Gray will go on to be a major Marvel character for quite a few years. Everyone also forgets that Blink and Sabretooth make it out of the Age of Apocalypse as well. They are pulled out mid-Armageddon into the series Exiles. And in fact, the Blink miniseries that came out a little bit after this leads right into Exiles. If you haven't read Exiles, uh, it's basically what if there was a team of mutants from different realities who shunted from reality to reality fixing problems and trying to get home. The old science fiction show Sliders, essentially the exact same premise. It was later rebooted as the series Extreme X-Men. It's really delightful in both incarnations and a really, really fun comic. So the Blink series is the one where she hooks up, hooks up with Annihilus, right? Uh, kind of, yeah. It's not really at all related to the Age of Apocalypse, even though it's technically a spinoff. Maybe we'll cover it sometime. We'll see. So that's the Age of Apocalypse. We are done, but we are also in our 300th episode, and while we don't have time to cover nearly all of the amazing questions that our listeners sent in, I feel like we can jump on a few of them. And, you know, you sent us so many good questions for this. Um, I will say, we've done this once before, but sometime in the near future, we're going to do an all-questions special where we try to wrap up the things that we couldn't cover in this episode, because there's so much, and they're so good. So let's jump off. Uh, Mark Riley asks on Twitter, what's your favorite X-Men milestone issue, i.e. 200, Trial of Magneto, X-Factor 100, etc.? You know, you mentioned it as your first example, Mark. Uncanny X-Men number 200, the Trial of Magneto, and the issue where Professor Xavier at the end goes into space to recover from his injuries, leaving the school and the new mutants to Magneto. It was a genuine, major paradigm shift, And it spoke really well to both the previous era and the upcoming era in equal measure. For me, that sort of goes from X-Men Season 2 to X-Men Season 3, if Season 1 is the Silver Age. 
Uh, also, Dennis Hopeless's take on the Silver Age was called Season 1. But regardless, the point is, it is a fine, fine climax that honors both the past and the future, and I love it so much. You know, it's cliche. We've covered it on the podcast twice already. I love X-Men 30. It's a really good issue. The Wedding of Scott and Jean. It is a fine, fine issue. I agree. If I had to pick a runner-up, speaking of low-digit adjectiveless X-Men, number 25 from Fatal Attractions, where Xavier rips out Magneto's mind and Logan gets his skeleton ripped out, like... It's an incredible climactic issue, and again, I think like all of the ones we're talking about, it is a big deal. Big important stuff happens, not just having a multiple of 25 in the issue number on the cover. Mark Paglia asks on Twitter, which two mutants would you like to listen to on their own podcast for 300 episodes? I feel like Destiny would be a really, really fun podcaster, as much for personality as for powers. And just to make the podcast an extra degree of surreal, I'm going to say Destiny and Blindfold. Oh man, that would be fun, but I'm going to have to go for Destiny and Mystique. We know they have a great dynamic and a lot of history. We know they have contrasting personalities, and they are both sharp as tacks. I think that would be highly, highly entertaining, and you would learn so much. I do not see Mystique having the patience for more than like two episodes. I don't know, she's like 200 years old. I'd imagine she knows how to wait for things. I mean, she's been in deep cover for ages and ages on various jobs. Oh man, here's a timely one. Josh asked us on Tumblr, Hey, you two holding up alright? Oh man, uh, all things considered, just speaking for myself, I'm I'm doing okay. I, I feel like I really can't complain as hard as things are. I have housemates, one of whom is my fiancé that I get along with really well. I still have a job. Uh, I just ran a half marathon. Uh, that hurt a lot, but I feel very proud of myself. Nice. Thanks. Uh, but yeah, the isolation and the state of the world are are a lot right now. But, you know, we're, we're all feeling that. So I hope other folks are doing okay as well. And I certainly recognize how lucky I am to have the pluses that I have in my life. What about you, Jay? As a shameless Scott Summers apologist, I'm going to have to go with I'm fine. Fair enough. Average Michael asks on Twitter, Could you build a team out of only versions of Nathan Summers? If so, who is on the roster and what is it called? I'll get to the team name, but I need to talk about the roster first for it to make sense. So my idea is that we start out with the guns and growling Rob Liefeld version of Cable from the early 90s, and also Dad Cable from the Hope era. And I know that they're the same character, but like, are they really... And then we have current teen Cable, Shaman-era Nate Gray from the end of the X-Man series, and then Strife with some kind of neural chip that doesn't let him be quite so evil, but he's still a jerk, uh, kind of like Spike in uh, mid to late seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So they go by Dayspring, because of course they do, they're very serious, but evil good Strife insists on calling them the children of promised fate, with like every vowel replaced by the letter Y, because Strife. Which, by remarkable coincidence, is also the name of his Christian emo band. Oh man, is, is Strife basically Tommy Gnosis from Hedwig? I'm pretty sure that Tommy Gnosis wasn't actually a Christian rocker, I think he was just raised super religious. But I don't actually have any lineup ideas, I would just call him the Cable Company. I mean, that's pretty good. A follow-up from David, the same question, but for Nathaniel Essex. You could do that just using versions from the 616, and in fact, Nathaniel Essex has done exactly that using just versions of himself from the 616. 
And I feel like as much drama as you'd get from a team of various versions of Cable, you'd get so much more with just Sinister, because it would be the most judgmental, backbiting reality TV show of a soap opera superhero team ever. Again, this has all happened in canon. All of this has happened before. All of this will happen again. Ken Kenobi blog blog asks on Tumblr. If a multidimensional orphanage director appears before you and says you have to adopt one X character at their most teen angsty, which would you choose and why? Definitely not Nate Gray. I can tell you that much. Okay, I have a, an initial question, which is whether they have to be an orphan, and also specifically whether I'm implicitly orphaning them if I pick them, because I have some ethical concerns here. Oh, those are very reasonable ethical concerns, yeah. I mean, you'd basically be nanny, as in nanny and the orphan maker, if, if you did that. So I'm going to go ahead and say, no, it's fine. This is just a situation where there is an orphaned version of them, and you can take them in, and that will be helpful to them. Of course, after coming up with that hypothetical, it doesn't actually matter at all, because my pick is an orphan anyway, so I would pick Cyclops, not for the obvious reason that I like the character, but because having written him at his most teen angsty in canon, I feel like gives me some really fundamental parenting advantages. Also, it's, you know, a little bit less tragic, because he's not exactly an orphan, he's got a space dad, who he just presumably doesn't know about yet at that point, but will later. He's functionally an orphan. Yeah, that's true. So, for me... I'm going to go ahead and pick a character who was never technically a teen and is only kind of sort of a mutant. I'm going to say Longshot. I feel like the teen angst that teen Longshot would have and my adult angst and the double standards that we each apply to ourselves around our various angsts and guilts and stuff would be very simpatico and we could totally help each other find hope amid the dark stuff. Uh, but like as an older family member, younger family member dynamic, because adults insisting that teens in be their support systems is putting way too much pressure on those teens, and I don't want to do that to Longshot or anyone. I feel like I'd do pretty well with Laura and Gabby. I think you would. I feel like your apartment would get pretty regularly cut up. Yeah, but, you know, they'd repair it. That's probably They're true. Conscientious. They're destructive but conscientious. Maybe your apartment would have a mutant apartment healing factor. That would be super handy. That would be very cool. I, I, I feel like the co-op board might have some issues with Jonathan, but on the other hand, you know, he's pretty intimidating, so... They probably wouldn't dare to say anything. Drink a drink, food a food asks on Twitter, is Marvel Snapshot Cyclops going to be released soon or in the medium term? That being, of course, for anybody unfamiliar, the Cyclops one-shot that Jay is writing. Yes, in fact, this was just announced a couple weeks ago. It is back on the schedule, and it will be out this September, in theory barring further disaster. Does that mean that the Teen Cyclops featured in it will be four to five months older to reflect the delay? It does not. He exists in the literary present. Mm-hmm. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, what are y'all's personal favorite bits from the show? Oh, man. I, I'm looking at our notes, and it looks like we wrote down the f same first answer. Yeah, so I genuinely worry on a semi-regular basis that I peaked with the Tim O'Brien riff during the Brood saga. The Brood they carried. I was actually going to mention that part, um, but honestly, I think that may still be the best episode we've ever done. It does help that it's one of the best X-Men stories ever, and it's a slightly lesser known one than something like the Dark Phoenix saga, so we had a lot to, to work with. But that one was really good. I liked Inferno in general. I mean, that covers about half of the show, but the actual, actual central Inferno, I think, I think we did a pretty good job on. Especially the parts about Madeline Pryor. I'm very proud of the work we did to, uh, to rehabilitate that character who didn't get nearly enough love and respect. 
this is this is a little narcissistic. This is this is just one of those you know things that I like. I really like my stupid songs. Mostly, I really enjoy getting to rewrite lyrics and make them about the X Men because it's fun and it's silly and it's great. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy those. You're really good at them. This feels similarly self-aggrandizing, but I do love our ridiculous show continuity running gags. So Shinobi Shaw totally knowing what sex is actual hawk warren kenneth worthington the third the perfection of super doctor astronaut peter corbeau and the centrality of hellfire goons harvey and janet who we should really talk about more all that stuff i think we tend to be at our best at two different specific intersections one of which is stuff that we're really passionate about and the other of which is stuff that we're discovering not necessarily reading for the first time but finding has, you know, more depth and more substance and more interest than we necessarily gave it credit for that we feel has largely gone under the radar. So stuff like Beauty and the Beast, Judgment War. I was just thinking Judgment War as you were saying that, yeah. That was a story that I read and didn't really care about, possibly because I only had half of it uh, before my father's collection ended when I was a kid. But getting to cover it on the show, we I just fell in love with it. The other thing I feel like I need to give a shout out to is is the episode's Several several episodes with guests, with other folks on them, because a lot of my favorite stuff doesn't actually come from us, um, comes from what happens when you, you throw other folks and other perspectives into that dynamic and just the things we've learned, the people we've talked to. I mean, I think I think the interviews with Chris Claremont, Louise Simonson, and Fabian Nicesa are, are going to be up there as, as my favorites forever. A couple convention episodes, a couple specific ones. The first one we did at Rose City Comic Con... Um, the Emerald City and FlameCon ones in quick succession, I, I think of them as the the, the sort of Vida Ayala duology because they're in both of them. But I think both of those, or each of those independently, is among the best live episodes that we've done. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Uh, for me, I also have a lot of love for our winter specials just because, like you were mentioning, one of the times I think that the show is at its best is when we're really excited about things and we almost always choose some of our favorite stories for those winter specials. Oh, dang, yeah, absolutely. Jay Tabon asks on Tumblr, if you had to name a pet super doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau, what animal would it be? I think it would be an axolotl. Possum. I feel like those are both very reasonable answers. But they're both specifically species that look really good in captain's hats. Good point. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, how are the chickens doing? The chickens are doing superlatively. Obviously, they are perfect. Um, we're actually in Connecticut again after about a month in New York, and uh, they missed me, which is really funny. I just didn't really expect them to remember me, but apparently they did. They've gotten very clingy. Guildenstern in particular will will run and do other stuff, but then just periodically run back to sort of weave around my ankles by a, like a cat for a minute and, and check in. And yeah, they're they're great. They're doing really well. They've grown a ton. They're huge. They're 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 round and floofy and 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 angling toward chonky and it's great oh very nice i hope someday to meet these chickens they're they're just really quality chickens i've been taking them out occasionally in the yard because they're they're very easy to herd and they're they're fine with being picked up and redirected and gildenstern has recently discovered butterflies and just really really wants to catch one legit i mean uh i hope for the sake of the butterflies that that doesn't happen but legit Rosencrantz, on the other hand, mostly just wants to look at every rock she sees from every possible angle. I can respect that. I do appreciate enthusiasm in any sort of organism. And speaking of, we have gotten so many incredible questions when we put out a call for questions, and just in general over the years. Normally, this is where we thank 
the folks who've been supporting us on Patreon. Um, some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement from fictional characters and concepts, but this is episode 300, and so we wanted we wanted to to make it a little bit bigger than that. So first of all, thank you to everyone who's stuck with us through all 300 episodes, I guess more than 300 episodes, because there have been specials and other stuff, um, and, and especially to everyone who's helped support the show, either you know, financially or otherwise. You are phenomenal. And we wanted to honor all of you today, so we have relaxed our usual policy about patron-only thanks, and I am turning the mic over here to Sexy Dracula, who has some things to say to every single one of you, and the angry Claremontian narrator. Across all the soft, deep shadows of the multiverse, over countless yearning years, we have been touched by so many listeners. Now, looking across those six years, each of those listeners is forced to wonder, what was it all for, really? All of those who have luxuriated in our language of longing. All of those who have experienced our voices' gentle caress. What else could you have accomplished in those 300 hours? A wiser soul might write a play, cultivate a garden, craft and animate a mid-sized homunculus. But you, listeners... You spent those hours, days of hours, weeks of hours, listening to two weirdos talk about superhero continuity. We are truly grateful for that which you have shared. As you grapple with the stark realization that, without you, none of this would ever have happened. We thank you for your quickened breath, your fast-beating heart, for your rushing blood, and your soft, yielding... I hope you're pleased with the life you've chosen for yourself, and ready to dive into 300 more, fully aware that every single one of those episodes will be, in a very real and concrete way, your fault. And with that, and ever onward... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, an exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by the amazing Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. We'll be back on the air, but off-topic next week with Hawk Talk. And back home in the 616 a week after that with episode number 301. And X-Men Prime. X-Men Prime.